Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to the Active Duty Passive Income Podcast. If you're new to the show, we welcome you. Please hit the subscribe button. If you are not new, welcome you back. And we have an awesome episode for you guys. We're going to be talking about financial readiness. I can't wait to deliver it. So here we go. Hey, Freedom Fighters, welcome to the Active Duty Passive Income Podcast, the only place where military members, veterans, and their families learn how to build wealth through real estate investing. I'm your host, Mike Foster, and I'm here to show you how to stop wasting your benefits. Now get off your ass, step up to the firing line, and make ready for today's lesson. Shooter, stand by. Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to the Active Duty Passive Income Podcast. We have an awesome, awesome guest here today. His name is Wayne Titus. How are you doing, sir? I'm great. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. If you guys don't know Wayne Titus, he's the founder of AMDG Financial and AMDG Business Advisory Services. He provides uh, accounting and financial uh, financial services to, or I'm sorry, for over $150 million, right? Of assets, yeah, we manage about 150 million or more in assets right now. Outstanding, yeah. Sorry, got a little tongue tied there, but uh, oh, no. that's impressive. <laughs> still yeah. pretty early in the morning, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. Still uh, got to get my coffee, but uh, but no, awesome. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on to the podcast today, sir. Really, really appreciate having you here. My uh, pleasure. I just want to ask a quick, uh, really quick. Can you go into a background of uh, kind of how you got started? Yeah, sure. Um, I worked with, uh, well, I, I actually started in sales and sales management at, uh, uh, kind of in the retail car business. Uh, my father was a car dealer, uh, but I grew up kind of around the dealership as a kid, washing cars and being a mechanics apprentice, working in the body shop, just kind of doing everything around the dealership. And, uh, I went, I went to school, picked up a business degree, went back to school, picked up an accounting degree and, uh, Ended up in the ended up in the accounting industry working for Ernst and Young and then PricewaterhouseCoopers with large uh, Fortune 50 clients, and uh, you know, around 2000 or so, you know, we had Enron failed, WorldCom collapsed, the 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 uh, World Trade Centers went down, a lot of stuff was going on. My father-in-law died at an early age, and I started I started kind of questioning what was I doing, who was I serving. And my wife likes to say I had my midlife crisis early. Oh man. Um, but uh, I started my own business, and, and my focus was basically to help families and small businesses integrate tax, financial, and investment strategy, and that's what I've been doing since 2000, January 2002. Amen. All right. Crushing it, sir. Outstanding. We, uh, we had uh, Tom Wheelwright on, on the podcast as well. He was talking about his days at uh, Ernst & Young, so it's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, it gives a lot of broad experience, and uh, it's 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 it was a, just a great opportunity for me to learn uh, about small business and about large business and business process and all of that good stuff, and to take that integration, that knowledge, and to apply it at an individual level. Right, that is awesome! Wow. So, I mean, very very successful, obviously for sure. Uh, entrepreneur since O two, that is impressive. Um, really wanted to uh, talk about, you know, some of what we spoke briefly about earlier, uh, you were mentioning about uh, financial services that uh, veterans, right, 
when they're move, transitioning out of the military, um, a lot of times now they're open to this whole new financial world. They have to kind of reset themselves. You know, um, are there, can we talk about some of the good and maybe some of the bad financial services that maybe service members should look for or should avoid? Yeah, I think one of the first things to do is to understand, uh, you know, who you're dealing with. There's, there's different compensation models in the financial services industry, uh, and there's different levels of uh, responsibility that those advisors have to their clients. Uh, you know, the, the different compensation models deal with whether or not you get a commission for a product uh, or you take only a fee, or there's a third, um, there's kind of a third option, which is in the middle, which is you take a, a commission and a fee. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, financial compensation is not so important, but I think the most important thing is to understand what the responsibility of that advisor is to you as the consumer of that service. And so there's, uh, there's basically the duty of loyalty that the advisor has to the client. That's the highest standard. That's called the fiduciary standard. Fee-only advisors are on that standard. And then you have the broker-dealers and insurance agents. They're held to a lower standard of care called suitability. That standard is uh, their duty of loyalty really truly is to their employer not to the consumer, um, but they have to make sure that they're recommending a product that's suitable. But what's suitable is uh, kind of a broad spectrum of things. So you really need to know what you're looking at in order to determine, determine whether that product that's suitable is really in your best interest or not, because they're not required to look out for your best interest. I'm not saying that they wouldn't, Right, uh, uh, or that people that work in that industry are 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 not good people, but I'm saying the burden falls on the consumer to understand that product, right? And that's and that's where I think a lot of things fail. the The kind of middle ground, the blend or the hybrid between those two models, the fee only model, uh, and the broker model, is called a fee based advisor. They split their duty when they give advice on allocation, like how your portfolio should be allocated between U.S., international, small and large, or value and growth kind of positions. Um, That is fiduciary advice. But as soon as they turn around and put a a product in that portfolio, they actually may fall to that lower standard of care. And consequently, they're able to receive a commission for that. So uh, it's important to understand that, you know, that relationship. Uh, And that's one of the things that we start with first is to try to understand the kind of the the terrain. Who who are you working with and how are they compensated and what's their responsibility to you? Right. Make sure that that's clear to you. Um, there's some great advice out there on, you know, how to look for an advisor, what to look for in an advisor uh, or to consider, and then you can make your own decision. Um, so I think that's one thing is to understand who you're dealing with. The second thing is what products are out there, um, you know, that you, that you might be looking at. And, and that's what we were talking about a little bit earlier is, you know, sometimes, uh, uh, because the because of the situation with uh, military pensions and from VA pensions, um, you know there may be uh, you may be presented more quickly an opportunity to invest in an annuity like product um, to bas- basically qualify for uh, VA benefits or some other VA benefits. So I think it's important to understand those those kind of aspects too. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, actually. I'm drawing some parallels to a conversation that I had with um, with someone else 
um, about the different types of um, like mortgage lenders or brokers, right? And understanding who you're talking to, who they're working for, what their commission is like, and really how they're going to help you out. And so it makes sense, right, in the financial world because there are a lot of sharks, I'm sure, right? As <laughs> I'm sure you know. Yeah. Well, you know, fiduciary duty is a legal standard. Mm -hmm. So that legal standard means I have to put my client's interest above anything else. I cannot be thinking about my wallet. Right. A broker or an insurance agent, their duty and standard of care, their duty is to their employer. When you think about that, you work for somebody, your duty of loyalty is to that employer. So if they tell you sell this product or that product, or this is important to push in this, you know, during this quarter, their responsibility really truly is to their employer. But that doesn't mean that they can't think about, um, you know, what's important to their client. It's just that they don't have that same level of responsibility. It's a lower standard of care. Right. That makes sense. Okay. So, yeah, guys, definitely make sure that when you are talking to uh, any representative, right, any financial representative, you got to understand, you know, who they work for, what they're doing, and how they're there to help you. And also, like you mentioned, understand the products that you, and services that you're going to get. Um, I absolutely believe that's critical. Um, in your experience, sir, do you mind talking about, um, or do you mind maybe uh, sharing some questions that, uh, that our veterans should probably ask, right? When they're talking about certain financial products. Um, yeah, sure. Okay. So, uh, well, you know, in my practice, I deal with veterans typically that are in, you know, they're retired, uh, they're, they're in retirement, mm -hmm. um, and they may qualify or may they may be thinking that there's benefits available to VA. And I think that's the one thing, actually, I always ask people that come into my office, you know, do you have military service? Have you, you know, have you been in the military? Are you a veteran? Mm -hmm. Uh, because I think it's first off important to understand that because it does set the context of other potential benefits that are available with healthcare, um, you know, potentially with aid and attendance, uh, and some other uh, pension opportunities, uh, you know, if you're an active uh, uh, war zone during certain time periods, you may qualify for an additional pension. But all of those benefits are typically provided uh, based on two types of testing that's done. So we have to understand the client's situation as it relates to the assets that they own, mm -hmm. but you know, for themselves and between them and their spouse uh, and the income that they have, what level of income do they have as far as uh, income coming in? Because the VA, they have, uh, you know, this product uh, or this opportunity, the service called aid and attendance. And so uh, it's something that that's available you know, in older age when you can't take care of yourself or if your spouse is having difficulty taking care of you. Um, that provides the opportunity to bring somebody in for a few hours a day to help out. Wow. Uh, and the government pays for that. Um, and so there's certain qualifications to, to go and be able to get aid and attendance. Then there's uh, potentially this opportunity for, a, for an additional pension to, to supplement uh, what income might be. But again, if your income and assets below a certain level and you, and you qualify for, for things because of your uh, experience, um, then you may you know, may have the opportunity to share in that benefit. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. So I find that a lot of, a lot of uh, veterans don't know that those benefits are available. The other thing that okay. carries on is those benefits are available for their spouse. So if they should pass before their spouse, their spouse is eligible for those benefits. Again, 
It's tested by the number of assets that they hold or the income that they have. But none of those benefits are available if they don't apply with the VA. Right. And so that's why we ask the question and try to figure out, are they eligible? And if they are eligible, have they applied with the VA? Do they have their VA card? Uh, and if not, encourage them to, to, to go to the VA or go online and go through the application process. And there's volunteers actually that help um, veterans kind of go through that process to try to cut through some of that red tape and make it less, uh, you know, uh, less of an obstacle for them. Right. Absolutely. Now, um, you're, you're absolutely right. And unfortunately, they do not teach us a lot of this stuff, um, you know, while we're in. Unfortunately, it's kind of left up to you as the veteran to go out and seek this education. So, um, and that's really one of the big reasons why we started this mission. And, and our goal and hope is that we can inspire more vets to take action while they're in the service, build wealth so they don't end up in situations like that. Well, they'll need something like this aid and assistance because they don't have the assets that's you know available to, to help them out. But even for healthcare and the drug and drug coverage and stuff like that, there's, I mean, there is some great benefits that are there that you don't, you know, that you can qualify for whether or not you actually uh, meet these other qualifications for aid and attendance and for, for pension. That's so I, th- I think it's just a great opportunity to, to, to go to the VA and mm-hmm. figure out what are the benefits that are available to you. Exactly. Amen to that. As a matter of fact, uh, there is a group uh, that we partner with uh, called Savvy. So I'll, I'll definitely drop that uh, into the, uh, the link. Uh, Adrian Phillips is one of the, the uh, members there that we work with a lot. And she's really knowledgeable in teaching folks about their VA benefits. So guys, there'll be a link that, to this page. Well. That's a great connection to make. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Wayne, as a matter of fact, can, since we're talking about this, do you mind uh, shedding light on maybe some of the uh, some of the services or some of the things that you've seen in your experience that vets have access to that might help, especially if uh, if they're maybe walking into your office, right? Something that they should know that they have the ability to and may potentially help with further business. Well, I think I mean the the, the big the big thing right now I think is healthcare and drug coverage. It, you know, those benefits are there and available mm-hmm. um, if you apply to the VA and you get served through the VA. And if you need outside assistance, sometimes the VA can, can help with that as well. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the first thing is, you know, there's, there's additional coverages for, for healthcare and, and prescriptions that you may not have, you know, maybe through your existing uh, employer plan. So I think it's always good to register for that. Okay. Um, I think the other thing is, um, you know, if you're, str- if you're struggling, especially, you know, from an income perspective, uh, and you've been in an active war zone and you're at retirement age, uh, there's the opportunity to apply or potentially apply for uh, a pension, a supplemental pension to help out. Um, so it's an additional amount that is in addition to Social Security and, and those kinds of other benefits that might come to you. But again, you have to qualify based on the asset and the income level. And Many times, and this may get a little deeper uh, than, than what most folks uh, are, are used to hearing about, but many times if you're quali- trying to qualify for that uh, benefit, uh, you can qualify, even though your income, might be, uh, your income might be lower, if your asset level is too high, there is a way to uh, manage that asset level by investing in uh, an annuity product and annuitizing it, which turns that asset into a stream of income which then potentially provides you an opportunity to access that additional pension amount. But I'd, I'd say to people, you want to be very cautious about that 
because when you convert that asset into an income stream, uh, it might serve you and your and your spouse through through their lifetimes. But what you might be doing is converting that asset to the point where uh, there won't be any opportunity for that benefit to go to any beneficiaries, so kids or other or other relatives. But I, but I think that's the most important thing is to understand somebody's situation and to talk with them about the different opportunities and options that are there because there isn't a one size fits all solution. Um, and many times when, you know, uh, when somebody has a hammer, they're just looking for a nail. Right. Right. And, 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 and the important thing is not, you know, you don't want the, the, I always say you don't want the tax tail to wag the dog and, but it's the same thing here. You, you don't want the, yeah, you don't want the annuity tail to wag the, you know, the, the, the decision on this just right. to be able to qualify for that pension. Isn't the be all end all of everything. You have to put it in the context of what does that mean in relationship to everything else that you're, you know, you know, that's going on in your life. And so you don't want to necessarily jump at that first. You want to understand the goods, the good of it and the potential detriment to that. What, what else is it sacrificing? Great so I think, point. I think it's important to, you know, it's not something you want to just walk into and say, yeah, I want to qualify for this and let somebody talk you into going into an annuity product. Cause once you do that, that's an insurance contract mm-hmm. and you can't change that once it's done. Dang. All right. All right. Uh, I want to take it back real quick, if you don't sure. mind. And let's, um, let's talk about what uh, an annuity is for those that yeah. are familiar with, with that. Sure. Um, well, an annuity is typically used as a term for an insurance product that pays a stream of income. But an annuity is a, str- it's a stream of income. It's not just an insurance product. So if we think about Social Security, that's an annuity stream of income. Okay. Uh, when you buy an insurance contract that promises to pay you over the remainder of your life, that's an annuity stream of income. You can create kind of an annuity stream of income for yourself by drawing off your savings balance in retirement. Um, it's, you're, you're just creating that off the savings that you have. That can also be kind of considered an annuity stream of income. Um, so an all an annuity is, is basically a creation of a stream of income. How you create that, like through an insurance contract or through triggering social security benefits or triggering a pension, like your, your, your military pension is an annuity stream of income. Okay. All right. So, so a pension is an annuity as well. Awesome. Okay, cool. That's a great way of, of, of uh, looking at that. Yeah. It's kind of like a, uh, another way of thinking about it is it's the, it's a defined benefit. Mm Mm-hmm. You've got this opportunity to receive a benefit that's going to pay you for the rest of your life once you turn that on at X number of dollars per month. If it's set up like that, that's an annuity stream of income. Awesome. Okay, great. So can we talk about some other, um, some good financial products that maybe uh, vets that are separating might want to look into? Uh, Well, the financial, and I think that the financial products are going to be dependent upon what you know, what the, your specific situation is. So mm-hmm. I think some of the, some of the simple ways that people save um, is to invest in, you know, uh, mutual funds. Uh, you know, typically as an advisor, we don't uh, recommend individual stocks. Uh, we recommend broader diversified institutional like mutual funds that are low cost. 
um, that we can put together so that you have exposure to different asset classes. So um, if you think about it this way, everybody knows what, what Legos are, <laughs> right? Right. You rip open that box of Legos and you pour it out on the table and you got bricks of different shapes, sizes, and colors. Yes, you do. And you got a little map and you open that map up and it shows you exactly how to snap together those pieces and that delivers a model, mm-hmm. right? Well, we do the same thing with institutional mutual funds. We look for different shapes, sizes, and colors. Uh, we snap that those pieces together to deliver a model. So as an example, we might you know design a, a model that has 60% in equity and 40% fixed income. And within that 60% of equity, we might have US-based income or sorry, uh, U.S.-based mutual funds. We might have international-based mutual funds. We might have small companies, large companies, value-tilted companies, growth companies. All of those things are considered asset classes. Okay. On the fixed income side, we might have mutual funds that hold bonds, short-term bonds, intermediate-term bonds, uh, global bonds, U.S.-based bonds, you know, municipal bonds. There's different kinds of bonds. But that allocation is something that supports what your goals and objectives should be. So when you're, when you're trying to figure out how am I going to get from where I am to where I want to go, you have to say what you have to figure out what that plan might be or what that might look like, and then design the investment strategy that supports that financial plan. Hmm. Uh, that investment strategy is that allocation and it includes those kinds of products that you might be looking at. And so we look for products that don't change size they don't change shape. They don't change color because we want to snap them together so that that model continues to look like that model. And many times when you look at the retail uh, mutual fund industry, the managers of those little Lego pieces change the size of their fund. They change the shape of their fund and they change the color of their fund. And so if you think about it this way, if you had 10 asset classes snapped together and every manager could do whatever the heck they wanted to do, that model, you know, a year from now is not going to look anything like what, you, what it looked like when you first snapped it together. So I think it's important when you look at a financial product that you understand how do those managers manage that fund or that you're working with an advisor that understands that and knows that, that you hold those, you want to try to hold those asset class definitions pretty strictly. Because if there's a lot of latitude, then what's happening is you may be taking more risk than you need to, or you may be taking less risk than you need to not the same amount of risk as when you started. So it's a deep, it's a pretty deep question, but I think the important thing is to, to understand that you need to be well allocated mm-hmm. and diversified. Uh, you need to have consistent strategy on savings and putting money away for the future. Uh, and you need to rebalance your portfolio periodically, like once a year, back to whatever that, you know, whatever that model was that you started with. So, right. uh, you know, even though you don't change shape, size, and color, uh, the markets change. They go up in value, they go down in value. So those bricks, you know, when you think about those Lego blocks, they're pretty hard and plastic and fixed in size, right? right. But the market's not. It, it grows and shrinks, right? So each one of those pieces is growing or shrinking right. every day. And so rebalancing basically pulls back those bricks that are getting too big. Um, some people would say, hey, if that asset class is going up in value, I'm just going to keep riding it until it's, you know, until it stops growing. The problem with that is you don't know when it's going to turn around and go the other way. That's a good point. And so the idea is uh, when it gets too big um, or when it starts getting larger, you sell off that 
that asset class that's grown in value and you buy another asset class that's shrunk in value. So you're buying something on sale and selling something that's grown. Uh, That's called rebalancing. And that's how you basically take some of the risk off the table. So when that asset class grows, pull money off of that as out of that asset class and put it in another one that's lower in value relative than your portfolio. Okay. Interesting. That's that's really good insight on the philosophy of us. I never even thought about a lot of that and the way you kind of described it. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Well, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose, but uh, you know, these are concepts that a lot of people haven't thought about and uh, aren't talked about. And so I think, you know, as part of my business, one of my, one of my jobs and responsibilities is to educate my clients. There's, when you look in the, when you look for any advisor, when you think about a doctor, when you think about, uh, uh, you know, a, a financial advisor or a tax accountant or somebody like that, there, there's a great book out there. It's called Being Mortal. It's by Atul Gawande. And he talks about, he's a, he's a surgeon by trade, but he talks about three types of advisors. He talks about the patronistic or paternalistic. You know, that's the one where your, your, your father might have said, hey, do as I say, not as I do, mm. right? They tell you, this is what you should do. They don't give you a lot of reasons about why you should do it that way. The second kind of advisor is, uh, is basically an informative advisor. They go out, they do the research, uh, they help, you know, they lay out on the table in front of you like the 10 different things that you might do in your situation and say, here are all your options you pick. And they don't really give you any background on why you should pick one thing over another. And then the third kind of advisor is an interpretive advisor. That's somebody that tries to understand what your situation is specifically. You know, what are the VA benefits that are available to you? What's your situation? What are all the things that you're trying to accomplish? Tries to set up the map, right? Um, of, of what your situation is and then to orient that map and then determine what's the strategy to get through the, you know, to get through the woods or to get to that objective. Right. Um, every, I don't know, you know, what orienteering is, right? You're, you're this spot, you want to get over there, but you got swamps, you got logs, you got rocks, you got mountains exactly. in between you, right? And so uh, the idea is you got to know the terrain. You got to set that master map. You got to orient that map. Where am I? You got to look at your compass and you got to figure out how am I going to get from here to there? And I know these things are obstacles. And then along the way, you're going to find other obstacles, right? How am I going to get around those? You're going to have to figure that out on the fly. That's the most important aspect of an interpretive advisor because they're walking or running or traveling with you along that, that route. Right. They're, they're, they're helping you make the decision. Why would you go this way instead of that way? Well, because consider this, consider this, consider this, right? They're, they're working with you and trying to give you Uh, from their experience and knowledge, what that terrain includes. You know, it's like in the military, you send scouts out, right? Yep, true. You know, that scout comes back and it's going to help the unit move forward. It's exactly the same thing. That's a good point. That's a great point. And thank you for shedding light on that. Um, I think often when we talk about diversification, right? I mean, you always look to have, uh, like you said, you know, a few different asset classes and and um, when you were talking about it, it made me think, okay, you know, having something that's aggressive, having something that's moderate, and maybe having something that's mild to kind of uh, be consistent. And then, like you said, rebalancing, right, at the end of each year. So um, often we get the question, um, you know, at least on the Facebook group, you know, as far as what, uh, I guess, what type of asset classes should a 
common real estate investor kind of use to help build wealth long-term? I mean, I'm sure that's kind of like an open-ended question because every situation is different, Mm -hmm. but but if, if someone is using real estate, say, as their aggressive asset class, you know, maybe what other um, asset classes could a real estate investor use to sort of rebalance their, uh, their portfolio? That's a great question. Uh, I've got clients that come in that have very large real estate portfolios. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's similar to working for a large employer. You know, when you have your income there, your bonus is coming from there, your pensions is coming from there, you've got a lot of concentration of risk. And the, but the idea is you're comfortable with that employer. You're comfortable with that real estate. You know and understand how it works, mm-hmm. but you need to have some more diversification. Um, and so, tip, you know, a typical allocation might include large company stock, large value stock, or mutual funds that hold stocks. Um, small company, small value, uh, international, small and small value, emerging markets, emerging markets value. You know, I think in the United States, we're pretty comfortable with um, companies that are from the United States. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the, the concentration of company wealth, that's called market cap. Um, there's about 60 some odd percent or 57% U.S. and the rest is international. And so you need to have some asset classes that are outside of just U.S.-based asset classes. Right. Um, because if you don't, when the U.S. market's down and the international markets are working, yep. how, do you, you know, how do you have that work in your portfolio if you don't have it there? It's a lost opportunity. And the issue is you don't know when those changes are going to happen, when, when things are going to switch. Uh, just as a quick aside, you know, last year in the U.S. market, the U.S. market was doing pretty good up until, um, you know, December. And then, and then it moved into negative territory. But the, but the international markets were doing terrible uh, all year long. So U.S. was up, international was down till the very end. Then U.S. was down and international was down, but they weren't down as, you know, the same amounts. Right. And, then the, and then the year started out, U.S. markets up. The international markets are up, small values up, different asset classes are up. You can never tell which asset classes are going to turn around or when. It doesn't wait till just the end of the year to make those changes that happens during the year. And so it's the same with real estate, right? Real estate markets move up and down. Real estate is an asset class. Mm-hmm. And, and it can be a good diversifier in a portfolio. Um, but it shouldn't be the only thing in a portfolio. And that's, what, and that's the question that you ask. What are the other things you should look at? You should diversify um, uh, you know, my grandfather used to say, you know, you don't want to gamble anything you can't afford to lose. That's a great, right? Great point. <laughs> right. And, uh, Gambling your house. <laughs> right. And so, you know, people don't think of, uh, usually investing in real estate as gambling, right? They think more about the equity markets as, Hey, right. I'm going to, that's speculative. I don't know which, what's going to happen there. Any asset class is risky. Real estate, fixed income, you know, if you went out and you bought a bond or a CD at a bank, it doesn't feel very risky because there's a promised return, right? And I use that in quotes. They promise to pay you a certain interest right. rate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if interest rates are increased by the feds or inflation changes or the credit quality of the underlying company that owns that bond changes, 
the yield of what you'll get off of that instrument, that fixed income instrument that has a promised return is going to be less, or it could be more depending upon which way things go. So it, you know, there is risk associated with any kind of asset class, real estate, fixed income, equity. I think just determining for yourself what that allocation needs to be is, is really important. And you can figure that out, you know, with an advisor, but sometimes that rebalancing, right? taking money off the table. So when you have a real estate asset class in a portfolio and it's gone way up in value, how do you de-risk that portfolio? Uh, I, I'd say, you know, one of the ways to de-risk that is to invest in a different asset class because mm. you've got a lot of exposure to real estate. When, then it becomes a question of well, when, do you, when do you pull that out to do that? That's a great point. You know, yeah. most people think that asset class is going to continue to grow over the years. And it probably will over long periods of time. You know, asset classes tend to rise over long periods of time. Right. Uh, but, but there can be shorter periods of time, which still seem long to us, mm-hmm. where that asset class could return negative returns, uh, just like any asset class. So uh, That's a good point. I, I remember in Michigan, uh, before the recession, you know, people used to say that lakefront property would never go down in value, ever. Wow. Uh, it did, you know. <laughs> Same with commercial real estate. And we've got a booming real estate market here in Detroit right now. Downtown Detroit, you can't buy, you cannot buy a piece of real estate down there without paying through the nose. <laughs> that is true. That's very true. Everyone is now in, uh, in, in Detroit. And I remember three years ago, looking at that market and seeing houses that were selling for like $5,000, maybe $10,000 that were multifamilies. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. Not anymore. So... That's awesome. Yeah. So we definitely teach, you know, uh, folks that, you know, the more you're educated about something, right, the less riskier it becomes. It's always a risk. You will never, ever not have a risk, right? But it's how to mitigate it by education. Right. And one of the things that we talk about with real estate is that you don't want to bank on appreciation because you don't want to just assume that the market's going to go up or, or assume that you can predict when it's going to go down. The more cash flow you can get out of an asset, the better. And then, you know, even for using it for diversification purposes, now you can allocate this cash flow into other assets or other asset classes, which is great to kind of balance your, uh, your risk, which is good. I think the other thing to consider too is it's not, it's not how much you earn in the market. It's how much you keep after taxes. Amen. Wow. That's right? a great point. <laughs> and so, you know, real estate has its own unique little uh, implications from a tax perspective. You, you know, you, you can do uh, like-kind exchanges and defer that gain to the future. Um, but, but eventually, you have this thing called depreciation recapture. That's called paying the piper. Yep. When you liquidate that asset, you're going to pay the piper, that tax piper, um, mm-hmm. on that recapture depreciation. Right. And so, I think the other thing is, it's not just in what you're investing in, uh, and how to diversify. It's how you're going to exit. What's your plan of exiting and how is that going to work? You know, um, because if you needed to liquidate, uh, you know, that's where you may be facing a larger tax issue uh, than what you might have otherwise thought about. So always keep in mind the fact that there is, there is this tax implication on the back end any asset class has that same issue. You know, if you had equities that went way up in value, you have to understand um, what that impact is. When we work with our clients, we try to understand what their goals and objectives are and then help lay out over a 20 to 40 year period a strategic tax plan. 
because if you think about uh, you're going to liquidate assets in retirement, like real estate assets that might have appreciated or equity assets that might have appreciated, uh, and you potentially have pension income coming in and maybe Social Security, maybe you have required minimum distributions from your IRA, all that's going to pile on. And um, what, what we find is if people don't plan well, they're faced with uh, what we refer to as a tax torpedo, right? Oh, no. It just comes out of nowhere. And right. you go, what just hit me, right? And I think that's an important aspect of, of making sure you understand and are integrating the tax, financial, and investment strategy. It's, it's important to have your financial plan. It's important to have an investment strategy that supports that financial plan. But how does the tax strategy work into that? Because if you don't consider that, you're going to be faced with that tax torpedo. And nobody should have to pay more tax than they're legally required to pay. Um, and so by planning over a 20 to 40 year period, you can actually pay potentially less tax than you might have otherwise paid and put it into a, a form that may benefit your, you know, your spouse or your kids or other, you know, other beneficiaries um, instead of the federal government. You know, <laughs> I think right. the government should get what they should get as far as taxes go. Right. Uh, but I don't think you should pay more than you have to. No, definitely not. Definitely not. And we are definitely in the business of preventing that for sure. Those uh, tax torpedoes, as you, as you said, that is awesome. Uh, can, is there, um, so other than real estate, are there other assets that you could get that are other great, I guess, tax shelters? Uh, well, I think, I think if you have a well-diversified equity strategy that's, you know, that works with the, you know, your overall savings plan, uh, that can work very well mm-hmm. from a tax perspective. Uh, because, uh, you know, there's, there's different investment strategies that are out there. Typically, we, we use a strategy that's uh, more passive associated with it. So, you know, I know that that's in your, kind of in your <laughs> wheelhouse, you know, yeah. genre, in your wheelhouse. <laughs> but the passive part of it is really strategic asset allocation mm-hmm. and rebalancing. It's not looking for quick hits. Like it's, it's not flipping houses, right? It's, 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 it's long-term investing and rebalancing. And by doing that, you can actually mitigate the impact of tax over many years um, because you're, because you're in essence holding that just like you would continue to hold a real estate asset, Mm -hmm. letting that asset continue to appreciate you hold investment assets like equities for a period of time. And it's not to say you don't sell portions of it, right? You sell little bits and pieces so that you're rebalancing, but you're not selling the whole position, which is typically what, you know, if you sold your, if you sold that one building and it had a huge, you know, capital gain, there's going to be some tax implications to that. Mm -hmm. Same thing in an equity portfolio. If we had one stock or one mutual fund and we just sold that whole position, it's going to impact us. But if we're just rebalancing and selling off little tiny pieces to rebalance the risk in the portfolio, we can actually manage that risk uh, and avoid paying more in tax. We can convert some of that to uh, like a, a client that might have a charitable intent. We can gift portions of that gain away to meet their charitable intent without incurring tax implications. So there's other things to do from that perspective. So I wouldn't say that there's one specific asset class, but right. I think it's the holistic aspect of how you manage that it's portfolio. It's the strategy, right? Not yeah. Into it. 
It's holistic. Mm -hmm. It's a holistic strategy that you've got to really be looking for. That is awesome. Uh, that's amazing. And again, guys, this is exactly why you want to have, you know, someone like Wayne on your team, right? A financial advisor who's smart that can help you understand exactly what that holistic approach to tax-free investing, right? Or, you know, tax mitigation and, and right. whatnot, we, right? We call it wealth enhancement, Wealth right? enhancement. I like it. Because if it's not going to taxes, then it's enhancing the wealth that you're trying to build. I like it. I love it. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Wayne. So much amazing uh, insight into this world. Um, really appreciate it and appreciate your time. Uh, I want to take you into the bonus round real quick. I've got three final questions for you um, just so our guys can kind of get a little bit more insight into uh, to you. All right, Michael, I'm ready. All right. So is there a buzzer? Is there- <laughs> <laughs> Big question number one. No. Um, what is your favorite book? Uh, the Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. Ooh, The Checklist Manifesto. I've never heard of that. It talks about the importance of integrating um, and making sure when you're dealing with really complex processes that you have checklists, right? So his, his, his deal was basically to minimize in, infection risks after surgery. So they wow. implemented a checklist and they were able to reduce infection rates significantly, like almost to zero. That's awesome. And you know, it's really funny that you mentioned that because I've heard of, you know, issues that came up like people leaving the gauze and stuff and like people's bodies or like Oh yeah. Well, you know, pi- pilots use checklists all the time. Right. And they do it religiously. Like it's it's just part of what their nature is because so much depends on making sure everything is done properly, right? Absolutely. Uh, we use checklists in our business. I think Checklist Manifesto is the best one of the best books I've ever read. That is great. Yeah, and it speaks to the military community because we use checklists all the time. Too. All the time. Yeah. So that's awesome. Awesome. All right. So that'll definitely be in the show notes page and I'm definitely going to pick that up this week. <laughs> so that's cool. Uh, question number two, who is your biggest hero and why? Uh, uh, I'd, say, I'd say a guy actually uh, named Oscar Romero. He's a, he was a bishop in San Salvador, and he was murdered and martyred, uh, but he stood up for people. And when he saw injustice, he spoke out about it. And that's, that's a guy that I aspire to be. Awesome. That is awesome. I, I think I've heard of him in my uh, history books, but that's dope. Okay, great. Question number three, final one. Um, and you've already given us so many nuggets of wisdom so far, but if you had three to give to those who are just getting started investing, what would it be? Uh, I would say, uh, be sure you understand the type of advisor that you're working for or working with, uh, that you integrate your tax financial investment strategy, you maintain a, a well and diversified portfolio, and that you rebalance periodically between the different asset classes and the, and the different risks that you have. Awesome. Outstanding. Mic drop. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Wayne. <laughs> Really appreciate your time on this podcast. Um, so what's next for you? Well, I don't know. I haven't decided if I'm going to write another business book. Uh, I do have a goal in my life to write a history book. Uh, my great-great-grandfather was in the 81st Pennsylvania Volunteers uh, during the Civil War. And uh, nothing's been re- written about the 81st uh, during that time period that I can find. And so that's going to be a book I'm going to be writing. All right. Awesome. And you mentioned that you, you have written a business book before? Yes. Yeah. I had a, I, in fact, it was just released on March 12th 
It's called the uh, the Entrepreneur's Guide to Financial Well-Being. Awesome. There will it's, be it's available on Amazon uh, and on my website WayneBTitus3.com. Great. Awesome. That was my next question. How our folks can get in touch with you? So, all right, great. So definitely make sure that you check those out, and then uh, and if there's anything else, uh, anything else you'd like to uh, say to our guests. Well, I just appreciate, Michael, the opportunity to come on your show and, and to speak with you about something that I have a great amount of passion for. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, we definitely uh, can tell your passion through it. And guys, make sure that you reach out to Wayne and his team. Uh, make sure that you go and check out his book uh, that just released March 12th, right? March 12th, yeah. Outstanding. All right, go grab a copy of that. And uh, thank you again so much for your time. Take Thanks, care. Michael. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Bye. Outstanding. Thank you so much, Wayne, for your time. Really appreciate your uh, expertise here on the show. Hope that you guys got motivated by that and make sure you hit the subscribe button. If you haven't yet, we're bringing some awesome guests on the show all the time. You don't want to miss any of it. And if you're just getting started in your journey, make sure you check out www.activedutypassiveincome.com where you can figure out how you can get tapped into all the awesome resources we have available for you to start your journey. And make sure you check through the podcast, right? We've, we, if you have a question on something, we've probably talked about it already. So make sure you scroll back and check out some of the older podcasts. We have a bunch of awesome stuff there. And if you'd like to schedule a call, you always have that option. Check the show notes page for how you can schedule a call with me or any one of our team. And, uh, and we'll get in touch with you to talk about some action steps that you can use to push yourself forward. All right. Got to go. I will catch you guys later. Later.